0: So I'm assuming you came down from the mountains today to be here. How did you make the trip? What? By motorcycle? Oh, Amtrak. Are you serious? You must have gotten some really weird stairs on your way down here on that Amtrak train. Oh, right. The train was empty because of the shelter at home order. I got it. you getting enough to eat up there in the mountains, mountain lion? By the way, you don't eat uh, people, do you? No way. (laughs) I've never heard of a vegetarian mountain lion before. Are you just trying to reassure me? By the way, can you move over to that chair in the corner so that you're at least six feet away and... Let me give you some hand sanitizer here to use on your paws. I noticed that you did not wash for at least 20 seconds before you came into my studio. Yes, this is a real mustache on my face. And I know this is not a real studio, and it's just my office. What do you mean you thought my mustache was fake? Is that folks mountain lion fur you're wearing? Oh, hey, we're on the air. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine, and I'm here in the Sacramento Mountain Lion Studio with a special guest an apparently vegetarian Amtrak riding mountain lion who goes by no name other than Mountain Lion or sometimes Mr. Mountain Lion. Oh, you're right, Mr. Mountain Lion. I forgot to insert some lead in music here, so what would you prefer? Elegiac? I'm not even sure what that word means, but I'll give it a shot. So I'm creating some content today to help fill the distance learning need for our students here at UC Davis who were just pulled from their clerkships today, as well as for other medical students that might be interested in this material from around the country. Although I mean, what would you rather do, sit at home? Listening to me going over the internal medicine essentials questions created by American College of Physicians and the clerkship directors of internal medicine, or catching up on your Netflix? Personally, I'd be watching Dancing with the Birds on Netflix over listening to me But you do need to keep up on your learning, uh, and you have uh, not a lot else to do at this point. So maybe you can watch Dancing with the Birds later after we slog through five questions here. By the way, just to put in a plug for some other medicine-focused podcast content, there are several podcasts that I'd encourage you to check out while you've got the time over the next couple of weeks. The first is The Curbsiders. This is a favorite amongst residents and students. And these cover loads of content. I think there's close to 200 of them. Uh, They cover everything from inpatient to outpatient topics. They do case discussions, mystery cases, and such. Uh, Personally, I feel like they're too long to keep my attention, but they're very well done. Another podcast to check out is called Morning Report. And this is a Morning Report-style podcast that started several years ago by a medical student who was at that time at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and is now an internal medicine resident at University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, PA. Shout out there to Pittsburgh. Um... Anyway he does cases and presents them to discussants who don't know the cases in advance. They tend to be fairly challenging. They come from various journals such as New England Journal, Journal of Hospital of Medicine and so forth. And they're very engaging and fun. Um, and it's a much more uh, sort of uh, organic approach because the discussants are not afraid to say "I don't know," and you know some of them are just thinking through uh, these cases out loud. Another podcast worth checking out is called Core IM and they have some great content uh, across the spectrum for medicine, uh, everything from dealing with the difficult patient um, to various other topics uh, that are more medicine focused. They also have mystery cases, I forget what they call them, zebra something or other. <laughs> Uh, and they have discussants to go with those. Um, And uh, these podcasts are really very well um, produced, extremely articulate speakers. Uh, And finally, the clinical problem solvers, uh, these focus on case discussions with guest discussants and also uh, very focused on clinical reasoning and approaches to clinical reasoning, uh, approaches to generating a differential diagnosis for a given complaint and such. Oh, and I should mention one other podcast I've been listening to, which is cleverly named Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Residency Podcasts. Um, and so, uh, guys there in Vanderbilt, you need to come up with a more creative name. And, you know, just be aware that the name Mountain Lion is taken. Um, how about Vanderbimerup, which stands for Vanderbilt IM Podcast? Okay, enough of my idle chatter. So here we go. I'm going to try and upload some content every 24 to 48 hours, but some of this will certainly depend on the fact that I go on the wards for two weeks beginning in just a couple days on Saturday, March 21st. So uh, that could get kind of busy if you know what I mean. Uh, Also, if you go back to some of our earlier content on Mountain Lion in the feeds, there are a bunch of rheumatology, hematology, and other subspecialty questions uh, from the mix app for students, which was the predecessor to IM Essentials. So I thought I'd start out with some infectious disease questions today. We really haven't done those in the past, and personally, I love ID bugs and drugs and such. So this is Item 1 in Section section 6 of Internal Medicine Essentials for Students, and it's the Infectious Disease uh, section. Item 1. A 54-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department because of fever, muscle stiffness, and altered mental status. The patient was well until two days ago when she had fever and myalgia. Today, she also had muscle stiffness. Hmm. Restlessness and difficulty remembering things. She reports no respiratory infection, headache, gastrointestinal symptoms, or rash. She has hypertension treated with lizinopril and depression treated with sertraline. The dose of sertraline was increased to 200 milligrams daily last week. On physical examination, temperature is 38.9 degrees centigrade or 102.1 degrees Fahrenheit if you're a Fahrenheit person. Blood pressure is 144 over 74 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 112 per minute. Respiratory rate is 18 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 96 percent on ambient air. She is agitated, diaphoretic, and shivering. Her gait is ataxic, muscle tone is increased, and deep tendon reflexes are increased. Myoclonus is present. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Diagnosis, I should say, a heat stroke, b malignant hyperthermia, c neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or d serotonin syndrome. So I'm going to give you a moment to consider those answers. Again, the answers they give you, there's four choices. A, heat stroke. B, malignant hyperthermia. C, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Or D, serotonin syndrome. So why don't you contemplate that for now? If you said your answer was D, you would be correct. This is serotonin syndrome. The most likely diagnosis is serotonin syndrome. Uh, serotonin syndrome can develop in patients taking any selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. can occur alone or in combination with other medications such as opiates, triptans, or over-the-counter medications such as dextromethorphan, uh, which is used in cough syrup, if you didn't know that. Symptoms can develop in as little as 24 hours or several weeks after initiation of therapy or a change in therapy. So that little increase there in the sertraline was key in this case. Serotonin syndrome may be mild with symptoms of anxiety, tremor, restlessness, or diarrhea, or may present with high fever, as in this case, muscle rigidity and cognitive changes. Findings unique to serotonin syndrome are shivering, hyperreflexia, myoclonus, and ataxia. This patient recently had an increase in the dose of her selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and has the symptoms and signs of serotonin syndrome. So congratulations if you got that question correct. But let's go over the incorrect choices because that's almost as important as knowing what the correct choice is so heat stroke results from failure of the body's thermoregulatory system the system may be impaired or just overwhelmed uh, thermoregulation may be impaired in the elderly and in patients who have or are being treated for conditions that can lead to dehydration um, or anhydrosis. diuretics and anticholinergic medications are commonly implicated Heat stroke is not associated with muscle rigidity, hyperreflexia, myoclonus, or ataxia. So the physical exam was actually helpful here, and if you're one of our UC Davis students, you know how much I love the physical exam and using that to help you with your clinical reasoning. Malignant hyperthermia, which was one of the other choices, is a reaction to certain classes of drugs, including inhaled anesthetics like halothane and others, and depolarizing neuromuscular blockers like succinylcholine and decamethonium, uh, whatever that is. Uh, It causes markedly increased intracellular calcium, increased cellular metabolism, and sustained muscle tetany. Severe muscle rigidity, masseter spasm, you know, that masseter muscle in your jaw there. Uh, hyperthermia with core temperature of up to 45 degrees centigrade or 113 degrees Fahrenheit. That's getting up there. Cardiac tachyarrhythmias and rhabdomyo- rhabdomyolysis usually manifest quickly when suscept- susceptible patients are exposed to a triggering agent. This patient has not been exposed to the implicated drug. So that's like the huge missing thing here that makes malignant hyperthermia highly unlikely. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, uh, the other choice that was incorrect, is an idiosyncratic reaction to neuroleptic antipsychotic agents. It is characterized by muscle rigidity, hyperthermia, and autonomic dysregulation. Temperature is only modestly elevated in some patients, and delirium is common. All neuroleptic agents have been associated with the syndrome. It often occurs when drug treatment is started or after rapid dose escalation. The patient was not exposed to the implicated drugs and neuroleptic malignant syndrome is not associated with hyperreflexia or myoclonus. Again, three chairs for the physical exam there. So the key point here is that serotonin syndrome presents with high fever muscle rigidity, and cognitive changes. Findings unique to serotonin syndrome are shivering, hyperreflexia, myoclonus, and ataxia. So if you've listened to one of our podcasts going back, oh, probably two or three years now in our feed, um, I talk about neurocalisthenics, the association of words, with uh, particular diseases in the way patients present and the way these questions are created for these standardized tests. So your neurocalisthenics for this question would be shivering hyperreflexia, myoclonus, and ataxia in the setting of the patient recently having had their sertraline increased. So let's move on to the next question and this is in, again, the infectious disease medicine section. Oh, and just to sort of wax a little bit um, reflective about that last question. So, you know, this is the infectious disease section, but they threw a little curveball at you, which was a patient with a fever who didn't have an infection, but in fact was suffering a drug side effect, namely from sertraline. And so the way I look at fever in a patient who's that young, that patient was 54 years old, is is sort of think of it in terms of bubbles. And in a younger patient or middle-aged patient, there's going to be a big bubble which covers infections as the cause of fever. And then you're going to have sort of a smaller bubble. And that bubble is going to be neoplastic processes such as uh, lymphoma, various types of cancer. Uh, And then the third bubble, which is going to be smaller yet again, is going to be things such as uh, autoimmune disorders. And this would be things like rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus erythematosus and vasculitides. And then finally, uh, probably even though it's a smallish kind of bubble to think about that's floating out there when someone presents with fever who's of this age and otherwise healthy, is, of course, drug fever, and that's what this case turned out to be. And then uh, another really helpful way to think about uh, infections and fever is, is the patient uh, immunocompetent or immunocompromised? And this was something I learned on the Morning Report podcast. Uh, This was Keith Armitage talking about a patient that was being presented who had fever, and as an infectious disease specialist, the way he likes to divide it out is, is the patient immune-competent or immunocompromised? Because that really changes your differential diagnosis about fever in a patient like that. Okay, so let's move on to item two. This is a 32-year-old man who is evaluated in the emergency department for a 12-hour history of severe agitation and tremors. The patient has a history of developmental delay and chronic schizoaffective disorder and resides in a group home. Medications are lithium, valproic acid, and flufenazine. Physical examination shows an agitated, overweight man in three-point restraints. I don't know what happened to the fourth point in the restraints, but be that as it may. Temperature is 39.4 degrees centigrade or 103 degrees Fahrenheit, again if you're a Fahrenheit person. Blood pressure is 110 over 65 millimeters of mercury and pulse rate is 110 per minute. Generalized tremors, rigidity, agitation, and diaphoresis are noted. Results of laboratory studies show a serum creatine kinase level of 1,480 units per liter. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So listen carefully, but I'll repeat the answers again in a moment. Choice A, lithium intoxication. Choice B, malignant hyperthermia. Choice C, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Or choice D, serotonin syndrome. I love that they put two of these questions in a row, perhaps to reinforce the learning here. And once again, we're not thinking that this patient's fever is from an infection. So, a bit of a curveball. So, A, lithium intoxication, B, malignant hyperthermia, C, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or D, serotonin syndrome. So, all of you that are in favor of choice A, raise your hands. Okay, a few of you. B, malignant hyperthermia. Oh, none of you. And C, Neuroleptic Malignant Syndrome. Oh, it seems like most of you are saying that. And then D, Serotonin Syndrome. No one. Okay, yeah, I guess because the patient is not so much on a serotonergic type of medicine here. All right, so let's talk about the correct answer. And in this situation, the choice is C, which is uh, Neuroleptic Malignant Syndrome. So this patient who has fever, tremors, agitation, and parkinsonism on exam is most likely to have neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So this is a potentially life-threatening disorder which is characterized by hyperthermia that is usually accompanied by autonomic dysfunction such as tachycardia, diaphoresis, labile blood pressure, extrapyramidal signs which are typically muscle rigidity or dystonia and elevated muscle enzyme levels, and altered mental status. The syndrome is actually idiosyncratic reaction, uh, and it's from exposure to antipsychotic neuroleptic medications. If you're wondering what the most common agents are that cause NMS, they're haloperidol, aka Haldol, and flufenazine, which this patient, of course, was on. Neuroleptic uh, malignant syndrome usually develops over 24 hours and peaks within 72 hours. The syndrome can occur with all drugs that cause central dopamine, type 2 receptor blockade, and usually occur soon after the start of treatment with a new drug or with dose escalation. Uh, NMS also has been reported in patients with Parkinson's disease who abruptly discontinue the use of dopamine drugs. And most patients with NMS have muscle rigidity. Again, that physical exam is really helpful here. Hyperthermia, that's part of the physical exam because you're checking their temperature. Cognitive changes, autonomic instability, diaphoresis, syluria, so, you know, like salivating a lot, seizures, cardiac arrhythmias, and rhabdomyolysis within two weeks after initiation of drug treatment. Symptoms can occur at any time during drug therapy and may persist for up to one month. Who knew? Uh, Symptoms may persist longer if parenteral medications were given. All right, so hopefully you got that one correct. Um, The kind of giveaway here again was the patient being on flufenazine and that we just had a question that had this as a wrong answer in it um, because that patient was on a uh, serotonin uh, uptake inhibitor, not on an antipsychotic. So what about the questions that were incorrect if you happen to answer any of these? Ac- acute lithium toxicity can produce neurologic findings, including ataxia, agitation, tremors, fasciculations, or myoclonic jerks. Um, but lithium in- toxicity, this is a key thing to know here, does not produce hyperthermia. And um, Just having seen a bunch of uh, lithium intoxication cases over the years, tremors are really uh, one of the predominant findings on the physical exam. What about malignant hyperthermia as an incorrect choice? Well, malignant hyperthermia, again, is an inherited skeletal muscle disorder characterized by hypermetabolic state that is precipitated by exposure to volatile inhalational anesthetics like halothane, isoflurane, enflurane, desflurane, and sevoflurane whatever that is, um, but it's a flurane. And the depolarizing muscle relaxants, succinylcholine, and decamethonium, which I can't say much better than I could say in the last question, Uh, And then finally, regarding serotonin syndrome, hopefully you didn't say this, but uh, like NMS, serotonin syndrome presents with high fever, muscle rigidity, and cognitive changes. So remember again, just to review this briefly, findings unique to serotonin syndrome are shivering, hyperreflexia, myoclonus, and ataxia. Serotonin syndrome is caused by the use of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, of course, and this patient does not take these medications. So I hope you didn't say that. So the key point with this question is that neuroleptic malignant syndrome is a potentially lethal condition that develops after exposure to dopamine receptor antagonists. It is characterized by muscle rigidity, hyperthermia, cognitive changes, autonomic instability, diaphoresis, scioluria, Uh, seizures, cardiac arrhythmias, and rhabdomyolysis. So store that away in your memory banks, um, and let's move on to the next question here. I've decided to do item four before I do item three, and I think in a moment it'll become clear why I've chosen to do item four first. So item four in the infectious disease medicine section, a 52-year-old man is evaluated because of nasal congestion, frontal headache, and rhinorrhea. He was well until four days ago when rhinorrhea developed. Two days ago, the nasal discharge increased and has become dark green. He has a frontal headache that worsens when he bends over and right upper maxillary tooth pain. He has no other medical problems and takes no medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Nasal examination shows red swollen mucosa and a green discharge. He has no lymphadenopathy. He has no pain with palpation over the maxillary sinuses. What is the best management plan? Ah, so this is a management question. You know, usually it's like diagnosis, next diagnostic step kind of thing, uh, or what should you do next in terms of treatment. So this is management. A, begin treatment with amoxicillin. B. Begin treatment with imipenem. C. Obtain sinus computed tomography. D. Order sinus radiography. Or E. Provide symptomatic therapy. So I'm going to give you a nickel here, and you have to put your nickel down on one of these choices. And I guess. The first step in this question is to make the diagnosis. What do you think the patient has? And if you know what he has, then you can make an educated guess if you don't know the exact answer as to how you would treat him. So the answer to this question, question number four, or item four, is E. Uh, And answer E is um, provide symptomatic therapy, aha. So you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. Um, Maybe if I was in my clinic at my medical center, they would have given this patient antibiotics. But let's talk about that. So this patient has acute sinusitis. So the most appropriate management for this patient is symptomatic relief. Common symptoms associated with sinusitis, such as headache, facial pain, and pressure that increases when bending forward, they can also have fever and toothache uh, have not been well assessed in comparison with gold standard tests such as sinus aspiration or radiography. Yes, they uh, in these old, older studies, they did aspirate the sinuses. Now, I'm not sure who agreed to have a needle stuck in their sinus, but maybe that patient was suffering and was willing to do anything to get better. Physical examination findings that have been shown to add diagnostic value include purulent rhinorrhea with unilateral predominance, local pain with unilateral predominance, bilateral purulent rhinorrhea, and pus in the nasal cavity. The presence of three or more of these symptoms has a positive likelihood ratio of 6.75. So why don't we just round that up to 6.8? for the time being, for the presence of bilateral sinusitis. So let me just give you those things again, because I think those are useful to know, particularly if you're interested in outpatient medicine or if you have to do outpatient medicine as a resident in a family or internal medicine training program or pediatrics. So physical examination findings that have been shown to add diagnostic value include purulent rhinorrhea with unilateral predominance local pain with unilateral predominance, bilateral purulent rhinorrhea, and pus in the nasal cavity. The presence of three or more of these symptoms has a positive likelihood ratio for a diagnosis of acute bacterial sinusitis of 6.8. Not bad, so remember your 2, 5, 10 thing for likelihood ratios, just to digress here a second. If your likelihood ratio positive is 2, that increases the likelihood of the thing you're looking for by 15%. If it's likelihood ratio 5, that increases it to about 30%. And if your likelihood ratio positive is 10, that increases it by a whopping 45%. (sighs) in a patient who is at average risk for infection with resistant organisms, but should be considered in immunocompromised patients who are at risk for infection with unusual organisms such as fungus or pseudomonas species. So generally reserve those CT scans of the sinuses. We used to do a lot more of them 20 years ago than we do now. So initial treatment of patients with symptoms that suggest acute sinusitis is largely symptomatic. Systemic antihistamines, intranasal, uh, sorry, glucocorticoids, and topical decongestants have all been shown to be helpful. Topical decongestion should be limited to a few days of use to avoid rebound rhinitis, uh, which is, by the way, known as rhinitis medicamentosa, a favorite question that the ABIM likes to ask the residents on their board exams the summer after they graduate their third year of residency. So that's a situation where they've been using a lot of topical decongestions, you know, squirting stuff up their nose uh, that they buy over the counter. And after a while, they get this rebound rhinitis, uh, which is from the medication itself. So rhinitis medicamentosa, it's one of my favorite words in the medical lexicon. So evidence suggests a small increase in the number of patients with acute sinusitis whose symptoms resolve if antibiotics are used when symptoms have been present for at least seven days. However, the cure rate is high in placebo-treated patients, somewhere around 80%. So therefore, the number needed to treat is also high. Eight to 15 patients would need to be treated with antibiotics to produce one additional cure. And so for this reason, some guidelines recommend initial symptomatic treatment with initiation of antibiotics only in patients with three to four days of severe symptoms, temperature greater than 39 degrees or 102.2 Fahrenheit, um, purulent drainage and facial pain, worsening of symptoms that were initially improving after a typical upper respiratory tract infection or symptoms that do not improve after 10 days. So what they're cautioning you to do here is to be conservative. Um, If antibiotics are used, there is no evidence that any particular agent is superior in patients who are not at risk for infection with resistant organisms. So amoxicillin, clavulinate, and doxycycline are both appropriate first-line agents. Uh, An extremely broad coverage antibiotic, such as imipenem would not be appropriate for treatment of bacterial sinusitis unless required by culture and sensitivity data, and that's usually going to be in one of these immunocompromised patients who got the full nine yards. Um, So... To summarize, the key point here is guidelines recommend initiation of antibiotic treatment only in patients with three to four days of severe symptoms, and by severe we mean temperature greater than 39 degrees centigrade or 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, purulent drainage, and facial pain, worsening of symptoms that were initially improving after a typical upper respiratory tract infection, or symptoms that do not improve after 10 days. So that's a, I really like that question. Um, they're obviously discouraging the overuse of antibiotics and the breeding of um, resistant organisms. Okay, so item three. A 45-year-old woman is evaluated in the clinic because of a one-week history of fever. One week ago, she was diagnosed with pyelonephritis and prescribed a 10-day course of trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, based on culture results. The urinary tract symptoms resolved over three days, but she continued to feel feverish. She took her temperature at that time, and it was 38.5 degrees centigrade, or 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. The fever has persisted. She reports feeling well otherwise and has returned to normal activities. Medical history is unremarkable. The only medication is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. On physical examination, temperatures 38.3 degrees centigrade or 101.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Vital signs are otherwise normal. There is no rash and the other findings on physical exam are normal. Findings of complete blood count are normal. Repeated urinalysis shows three leukocytes per high-power field, and findings are otherwise normal. So lots of normals. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the patient's fever? A, antibiotic-resistant urinary tract infection, B, drug fever, C, factitious fever, or D, normal-resolving urinary tract infection? So, let me read those choices again. A, antibiotic-resistant urinary tract infection. B, drug fever. C, fictitious fever. Or D, normal resolving urinary tract infection. So the answer here is B, drug fever. This patient most likely has drug fever. So antibiotics can cause or prolonged fever, creating confusion for the astute even the most astute clinician. A common cause of drug fever is sulfonamide and beta-lactam antibiotics, as well as nitrofurantoin, sometimes known as macrodantin. This patient was treated for pyelonephritis and responded well to treatment. She's otherwise asymptomatic and feels well. Findings on physical examination are normal despite a documented fever eosinophilia and rash and accompany drug fever in only 25% of cases. It's sort of an important thing to keep in mind. They're helpful when present, but they don't mean if they're absent that they don't have drug fever. Their absence does not exclude drug fever. The diagnosis of drug fever is made by discontinuing use of the suspected drug. And in some cases, drug challenges attempted to document the source of fever. That's something I've never done before unless by accident. In most patients, the fever abates within 72 hours after discontinuation of the drug. Substitution of the suspected drug with a drug from the same class may cause fever to persist or recur. In this patient, the appropriate management is to stop treatment with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Whether another antibiotic needs to be prescribed depends on the underlying infection, the response to therapy, and the duration of treatment before the antibiotic was stopped. Because drug fever tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion, all patients with suspected drug fever should be carefully observed for the possible presence of an alternative diagnosis. So just to go through the the wrong answers here are uh, incorrect I should say. Um, although antimicrobial resistance is possible, the patient's symptoms responded quickly to antibiotic therapy with complete resolution of those symptoms. And her repeat UA you noticed uh, does not suggest persistent infection. She only had three uh, white cells per high power field and no evidence of bacteria in her urine otherwise known as bacteria. Uh, Regarding fictitious fever, uh, this is a really pretty uncommon diagnosis. Um, Patients with fictitious fever often have an underlying psychiatric disease and cause elevation of their temperature in a number of ways, um, which I won't go into. But there's no suggestion in this patient of a possible fictitious cause for the fever. And you guys know from experience of doing many multiple choice questions, they would have given you other clues to this being fictitious fever. That's a pretty straightforward question. And finally, in most patients with uncomplicated pyelonephritis, fever resolves with appropriate antibiotic therapy in around three to four days. And by the way, just so you know, in pylo, it tends to occur on a daily basis, but becomes less and less. as the days go on. So they might have another fever the next day, and then a less so of a fever the following day, and so forth. It's very important to warn patients about that. Otherwise, they're going to come back and see you, and tell you that they're not getting any better. So fever persisting after three or four days uh, raises the issue of a potential complication of the infection, such as a renal abscess, or as in this case, drug fever. This patient has no other symptoms associated with a complicated infection, such as evidence of ongoing infection, fatigue, pain, or uh, leukocytosis, and this makes the possibility of a drug fever more likely than that uh, her infection isn't resolving properly. So the key point in this question, and the reason I didn't want to do this third was because I gave you two other questions initially up front that were related to medications. So the key point here is that drug fever should be suspected in patients who recently started treatment with a new drug, particularly an antibiotic, and remember the beta-lactams and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole are the two that are most commonly associated. Uh, and uh, these patients should have fever without other obvious signs of infection or inflammation. And if I didn't say this before, and I did, I'm going to say it again. Um, think in broad buckets and bigger buckets than smaller buckets when you're thinking about fever. Uh, in this particular patient, when she initially presented, she had an, she's a young woman Uh, relatively healthy with a fever, so of course that broad bucket was an actual infection, and then when she comes back uh, toward the end of her antibiotic course, uh, she no longer has an infection, she actually has developed drug fever. So again, the first thing you should really think about is infection in a young or middle-aged person who has a fever and is not otherwise immunocompromised and so forth. That's my little soapbox for now. Okay, let's move on to the last question of these five. We're just doing five questions today because I don't want to completely overwhelm you. If a 19-year-old man is evaluated because of a two-day history of sore throat, cough, fever, and chills. On physical examination, temperature is 38.9 degrees centigrade or 102.0 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 122 over 82 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 88 per minute, and respiratory rate is 14 per minute. The pharynx is erythematous with tonsillar enlargement and exudates bilaterally. There is no cervical lymphadenopathy. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? Oh, uh, sorry, the mountain lion is um, looking for lunch, and he's looking at me, but again, he's vegetarian, so uh, you can go over to the cafeteria. You can't go over to, you can't go over, he can't go over to the cafeteria because they're screening all patients and visitors for the uh, presence of fever and such, and he doesn't want a thermometer up his, you know, where. Um, So, then go to Starbucks. Here. I'll give you my Starbucks card, and you can pay me back at a later date. All right, you're welcome. All right, so which of the following is the most appropriate management? A, obtain throat culture and start penicillin therapy. B, perform rapid antigen detection testing. C, start penicillin therapy or D, no further testing or treatment? I love this question. So again, the choices are, which of the following is the most appropriate management? It's another management question. A, obtain throat culture and start penicillin therapy, B, perform rapid antigen detection testing, C, start penicillin therapy, or D, no further testing or treatment? All right, I'm not gonna take a poll of what you've answered here, Um, But the answer here is B, perform rapid antigen detection testing, uh, or rapid strep test. Um, This patient should be given a rapid strep antigen test before initiation of antibiotic therapy. So remember those, uh, what do you call those, Centaur criteria. Uh, By the way, Bob Centaur has a good uh, podcast uh, that uh, comes out from the ACP where he goes over articles. But... Anyway, uh, he's the guy who uh, came up with the Centaur criteria and the modified Centaur criteria. So, the patient's primary symptoms are fever, cough, and sore throat, which are compatible with either a viral upper respiratory tract infection or strep pharyngitis. So, the Centaur criteria, which is temperature greater than 38.1 degrees centigrade or 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit, for you, Fahrenheit out there, tonsillar exudates, and tender cervical lymphadenopathy, absence of coughs, um, predict the likelihood of strep pharyngitis. Okay, so again, those criteria which are all important to know for practice as well as for these standardized test things like the shelf, step two, step three, the boards, etc., etc., The center criteria are temperature greater than 38.1 degrees centigrade or 100.5 Fahrenheit, tonsillar exudates, tender cervical lymphadenopathy, and the absence of cough. And those predict the likelihood uh, of whether or not the patient has streptococcal pharyngitis. The use of these criteria is a reasonable way to triage patients with pharyngitis to empiric Treatment with antibiotics, symptomatic treatment only, or testing with treatment if the test result is positive. Patients with all four criteria have a 40% or greater chance of having group A beta hemolytic streptococcal pharyngitis. Patients with zero or one criteria have a low or less than 3% probability of having a group A beta hemolytic strep pharyngitis. This patient has two criteria, so two of the four. Patients with two or three criteria have an intermediate probability of having uh, group A beta hemolytic strep pharyngitis. So for these patients, some guidelines recommend throat culture and others recommend rapid antigen detection tests with confirmation Um, of negative results. So the advantage of the rapid antigen detection test is the immediate availability of the results, whereas if you do a throat culture, it takes a while to come back. The sensitivity and specificity of the rapid antigen detection test you're probably sitting there wondering about, uh, and those are similar to those of throat culture. The throat swab for either culture or rapid antigen detection tests should be obtained from both tonsils or tonsillar fossae and the posterior pharyngeal wall. In high-risk patients, a negative antigen test result should be confirmed by throat culture. So no guidelines recommend antibiotic treatment without further testing. Some recommend treating patients with three or four center criteria while the test results are pending, although guidelines differ on this point. But the main thing uh, you should know here, key point, is use of the four-point center criteria is a reasonable way to triage patients with pharyngitis to empiric treatment with antibiotics, symptomatic treatment only, or testing with treatment if the test result is positive. And the sort of other thing to know, because uh, uh, many of you students are going to be seeing questions you know, for both pediatrics and internal medicine on step two, is that uh, y- younger school-age children are more likely to have strep pharyngitis than are um, adult-type people. So your probability does rise, while with four criteria, the probability is 40%. I don't remember the numbers, but if it's, a, say, an um, a 11-year-old who comes in with these symptoms and four criteria, I think the percentage is even higher than that. But you'd have to ask Bob Centaur that. He is a wizard when it comes uh, to this type of thing. So we're going to stop there. That's five questions for today, and I believe that your brains are saturated for now. Um, I hope you enjoyed this production of Mountain Lion Podcast Studios. When the mountain lion comes back from Starbucks, I will tell them you all said goodbye. Thank you, and have a great day.